most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. Thursday, April 7th, 2022, the 442nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Right off the top, I want to thank the great people at MyPillow for supporting this show. And if you would like to support me and a great American company and a great American patriot in Mike Lindell, Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code REASONABLE for up to 60% off all sorts of different items on MyPillow.com and you will get a free gift. I think it's Mike Lindell's book. I have some great MyPillow stuff. I have the mattress pad. I have the sheets, the Giza Dream Sheets, and I have a bunch of MyPillows and they all make life so much more comfortable. And they're sending me the towels, and the slippers, which I'm stoked about. So if you feel like you need some stuff to make your life more comfortable, go to MyPillow.com, use promo code REASONABLE, and thanks. So I want to start off today with just a little postscript on the Chris Hayes segment and the Joan Walsh segment on yesterday's show, where they are both going to bat claiming that Republicans are pouncing. The whole thing is crazy, this whole thing about groomers and pedophiles. They don't exist in the minds of Chris Hayes and Joan Walsh. And being a former liberal myself, I kind of understand the mindset. You actually assume that the incidents of pedophilia are isolated, like a creepy uncle or something, the sort of thing you would see on an after-school special in the 80s. And you don't think about the child pornography trade. You don't think about child sex trafficking. You don't think about the fact that teaching children about sexuality and alternative sexualities at a young age is something that real people are motivated to do. You assume that because people are arguing for it in public and they're not keeping these sorts of things a secret that they couldn't possibly be a big deal or else they'd be, you know, hiding it. They wouldn't be so proud of their positions. So you think there must be some way this makes sense. All these serious and seemingly intelligent people are supporting this thing. So there must be some way in which it's right. And 
if you don't actually want to pursue the issue, you can kind of turn your brain off like that and stop paying attention to it. And I think that that's what a lot of people on the left do on that issue and truthfully, pretty much every issue. But once you do wake up, you understand that there is actually a structure to these things and there's an intent in teaching children about alternative sexualities when they're four years old and six years old. They're not just exposing them to new ideas. They're not just encouraging tolerance and saying, hey, some people live different lifestyles than what you're accustomed to. It's not simply about tolerance. It's about putting different ideas in children's heads that is reliably changing the outcomes of these children's lives. When teachers and parents are encouraging a child to think of themselves as gay or transgender, that has an impact on those children. I was, when I was in Hollywood, there were people who were raising their children as the opposite gender. I know of an actress who was raising her son as if he's her daughter and that it was entirely her son's choice. And I'm talking about like a five-year-old here. That child is not going to grow up thanking his mom for trying to turn him into a girl. That child is going to grow up hating his mother and understanding that she abused him. Because, of course, she constantly posts about it on Instagram. She's very proud of the fact that she is the parent of a trans child. She's using her child to virtue signal, much like Hollywood parents did when they got their children vaccinated. Yeah, we had to hold him down and he was screaming. But finally, finally, we got that needle into that little arm. And now my child is protected. I guess protected from a disease that could have never killed my child and basically never caused him any serious illness. And the truth is, if my child got COVID, we never would have known it unless we were constantly testing with faulty tests because unvaccinated children have virtually no reaction to COVID whatsoever. <laughs> but at least he's protected now. Maybe their trans kids will grow up and be like, hey, thank goodness my mom decided to make me trans for a little while so I could see what it's like and now realize that I am not, in fact, trans. I'm sure that they will be thanking their parents down the road for this sort of treatment. But Chris Hayes last night went back on the television to continue explaining how not bad pedophilia and grooming are and how very bad Republicans are for focusing on that issue. All Republicans are QAnons if they talk about pedophilia or grooming. It's almost as if they brought it up themselves just to attack the Democrats and not that the Democrats and their fake president nominated a woman who is lenient on child pornography for the Supreme Court or took a parental rights bill to prevent grooming in Florida and called it a don't say gay bill, as if every gay person in the world was under attack from a bill designed to make it so that strangers, which is what teachers are, strangers hired by the state would not begin teaching your children 
about alternative sexual lifestyles at age four. It's all the Republicans' fault. They pounced again. You know, saying my the, the appointing party are a bunch of evil pedophiles is like really, really ugly rhetoric. Um, someone on the internet was that said said this sounds like you know pre genocide rhetoric, right? Like they're the most evil kind of thing that you can imagine. And, and whether there's some blowback for that, even if, I don't know, even in the same universes on the right that are inhabiting this. Rachel Maddow's butch alter ego just claimed that someone on the internet brought up the fact that all this talk is almost like pre-genocide rhetoric. You got that? So talking about how the Democrat Communist Party collectively, with the help of some, maybe even many rhinos, like Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins, are defending grooming and leniency on child pornography, that's the prelude to genocide. Because what you're doing is taking a defined group, Democrat communists and some Republicans, and also anyone else who defends people who are into child pornography and people who want to groom your kids, that that group, you know, that single definable group. Well, that's genocide. I mean, except according to the definition of genocide. Genocide, of course, is the intentional mass murder of people based on an ethnic or national or racial or religious group, not based on the fact that they defend pedophiles. And by the way, calling groomers groomers and calling child pornography defenders groomers and talking about pedophiles, well, that's not killing. And it's not even close to killing. And it's not pre-killing either. So it's certainly not pre-genocide. But what else are you going to say at this point to make Republicans stop pouncing? I mean, yesterday in the Joan Walsh article, she talked about how bringing up Pizzagate online, a conspiracy theory about a man named James Alafontis, who owns Comet Ping Pong in Washington, D.C., the pizza place. Well, he's got a whole bunch of really, really creepy art and really, really creepy Instagram posts. And he is very tied into the Democrat power structure in Washington, D.C. And his stuff's not just a little creepy. It's very creepy. And it does seem like the sort of creepy stuff a pedophile might be into. So you can forgive people for using their eyes and ears and brains. But it wasn't just that because the WikiLeaks emails that were released showed Barack Obama, Barack Obama's White House, spending $65,000 to have pizza and hot dogs shipped in from Chicago for a party. Does that sound very weird? Sure does. Now, I don't know the ultimate truth of all that, but I do know that there's something weird going on there. So Pizzagate became a conspiracy theory, and you have to stop that conspiracy theory and make it dangerous. So 
a coincidence happened. And it turns out that a man went to Comet Ping Pong with a gun, planning on apparently killing people, but there was nobody there. So instead, he just shot a hard drive, making that hard drive totally unreadable. And let's remember what Joan Walsh said about it. Pizzagate morphed into the kaleidoscopically unhinged QAnon movement, which met up with white supremacy and Donald Trump worship and fueled the January 6th insurrection. Okay, so there's very creepy, suspicious emails on WikiLeaks about $65,000 worth of pizza and hot dogs being shipped to Washington, D.C. for a party. It's so strange that they didn't just get the pizza from the pizza place. Maybe they just didn't want to do business with James Alifantis, who had all those creepy pictures and artwork, (laughs) right? So that happened. Someone shot up the place. That turned into QAnon somehow. And then that turned into white supremacy, even though there's nothing white supremacy oriented about Q posts in the least. That turned into Donald Trump worship. And then all of that turned into a very violent insurrection. And we'll talk about the insurrection in just a second. But the insurrection wasn't enough. This kind of talk is actually much more dangerous than some guy shooting a hard drive in Comet Ping Pong. And it's even more dangerous than a very violent insurrection. It is so dangerous that talking about this stuff is actually a prelude to genocide. And once you get to genocide, well, then you get to start talking about Nazis and they get right back around to calling everybody except them Nazis, even while they're supporting actual Nazis. Again, in the last few weeks, they have found themselves supporting Nazis, groomers, and leniency on child pornography. They're defending all of those things, but we're the problem. We are the problem. All this dangerous talk about truth and morality. Oh, it's the prerequisite for a genocide. Now, speaking of the very violent insurrection, CNN has to do some mop up work on their insurrection narrative. They had to publish this today. It must have been a very sad moment in the CNN newsroom. Man who said January 6th was, quote, magical acquitted in U.S. Capitol riot case. A federal judge on Wednesday found Matthew Martin not guilty of four federal misdemeanors relating to trespassing, marking the first time a U.S. Capitol riot defendant was acquitted of all charges. Martin, who worked for a government contractor before his arrest following the riot, successfully argued that a U.S. Capitol police officer waved him into the building. At least one video played during the trial appeared to show an officer moving his arm in a waving motion. Now, we should be able to stop right there, but of course we can't because we actually knew that 15 months ago. We knew that in the days right after the very violent insurrection, that the Capitol Police had opened up the doors, 
moved the stanchions aside and waved people right on in. And we are told that didn't happen. Those videos are fake. Talking about that is a conspiracy theory. It's told by people who believe the big lie. So they staged an insurrection trying to overthrow the results of a free and fair election. And now they're probably going to genocide us all. The fact that U.S. Capitol Police officers were waving anyone into that building, and they were, and now that fact has to appear on CNN.com, that should pretty much mop up the whole January 6th very violent insurrection narrative, but of course it won't because they still need the illegitimate January 6th committee to find a whole bunch of evidence and documents and communications that those communists are not otherwise legally allowed to access. And that, of course, is what this is all about. But don't worry, none of the child brains in your life are going to read this article and they will not understand what waving people into the Capitol actually means in a broader context. They will still be certain that you are a domestic terrorist. The acquittal is a major milestone in the massive January 6th investigation, as hundreds of people face the same misdemeanors as Martin. Dozens of rioters have alleged they, that they were allowed into the Capitol by police officers and that they did not know entering the building was illegal. The not guilty verdict is likely to embolden more alleged rioters to head to trial with similar claims. And that's an awfully strange way of phrasing that for an objective news source. One would think that they would be reporting this as a viable defense for other people who actually experienced that. And instead, they frame it as, well, now other defendants are going to use this same crazy conspiracy lie. They're going to trick the judges by saying that they were waved in. And we, we know they aren't. That was debunked repeatedly. It's been debunked many times by reputable news sources and government officials. Hey. You're a domestic terrorist for going in the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. Oh, really? Well, the thing is, Capitol Police officers waved me in. Am I still a domestic terrorist because I did what the police told me to do and allowed me to do? Oh, I am. Oh, got it. I guess I'm going to have to come up with another defense right now. Maybe the defendants should just make sure they know the entire central narrative and only operate, only plan their defense based on what we've been lied to about by the mainstream media. That'll that'll be justice served. Judge Trevor McFadden, an appointee of former President Donald Trump, issued the ruling after a two day bench trial that started on Tuesday. McFadden on Wednesday said Martin, quote, more likely than not, committed at least one of the misdemeanors, but that, quote, close calls go to the defendant in the American judicial system. So he's guilty, even though he's not guilty, according to CNN's very small quotes that they pulled out of context and then they put into their own sentence. 
Martin was the first Capitol riot defendant to testify in his own defense. If the cops weren't letting people in, I would not have gone in, Martin said during his testimony on Wednesday. Martin described the activity outside the Capitol on January 6th as a big block party. It was a magical day in many ways, Martin said. Martin also told the court that at the time, he did not think the riot was violent and only later found out that people had died. And Martin's attorney was actually on the Lou Dobbs show this morning and explained that his client went in to the Capitol after being let in by a Capitol police officer and he entered on the other side of the building from where the violence was happening. So the man believed that he was attending a lighthearted, good-spirited rally that felt like a block party, a magical day. He went into the Capitol upon a Capitol police officer waving him in without seeing violence or experiencing violence. He left and went back to his hotel room. And at the hotel room, he saw coverage of the events of that day that didn't seem to resemble his experience at all. But according to CNN, he's at least sort of guilty. And he didn't know that people died. And truthfully, the reports of certain people dying that day turned out to be fake news. Not that people didn't die. Ashley Babbitt was apparently shot at point blank range by a Capitol Police officer named Michael Byrd, who had previously left his service weapon unattended in a bathroom. He's what Nancy Pelosi would call a very good officer. Those are the sorts of people you can really trust. I mean, could his service weapon have been found by someone? And could any of the members of Congress have been killed through his negligence? Yes. But this time he made sure to kill an innocent and unarmed Trump supporter from point blank range without warning her he was going to shoot her. So, you know, in the false reality, he's a hero. Now, they told us Brian Sicknick died, that he got bludgeoned with a fire extinguisher and beaten to death. Turns out that wasn't true at all. He died the next day of what they call a stroke. And January 6th, 2021 was probably too early for him to even have been vaccinated. So a man at that age having a stroke and dying, ah, it sounds unlikely. But hey, Capitol Police officers apparently die in strange ways way more often than we ever expected in the days following the January 6th very violent insurrection. In fact, three or four other Capitol Police officers died by apparent suicides over the next couple of months. So Ashley Babbitt dead, a woman named Roseanne Boyland also dead. We're told that she overdosed on Adderall because they don't want to tell us that she was beaten and trampled to death by Capitol police officers. And you know, these are the sorts of things that would cause the government to consider maybe holding back 14,000 hours of security footage from all around the Capitol for a year and a half or so while people rot in prison as political prisoners. But it's no big deal. They were probably all at least partially guilty, right? It's crazy that 
this man was there and he like didn't even realize that so many people died, even though, you know, certain ones were just completely fake news. McFadden has emerged as one of the most skeptical federal judges of the Justice Department's hardline prosecutorial approach in riot cases. Oh, well, hopefully he doesn't make any more terrible decisions, right, CNN? Then, then the whole bottom might fall out of this narrative. Can't have that. In March, McFadden questioned whether the Justice Department had enough evidence to prove that defendant Cooey Griffin had knowingly broken the law and found him guilty on one of two misdemeanor charges. More than 530 criminal cases related to January 6th are still pending. And that's a huge number. That number of cases still pending. Well, that tells you how very violent the very violent insurrection was. And, you know, the 14,000 hours of security footage that they still are not releasing to the public or even to defense lawyers. That probably backs up CNN's story completely. Now, you know, the worst thing about the very violent insurrection is that it was all based on the big lie that Donald Trump actually won the 2020 election. And of course, it's a lie. Everybody understands that Joe Biden from his basement could absolutely secure 81 million real legal American votes. I mean, sure, Donald Trump increased his vote total from 2016 to 2020 by 12 million votes, a full 20 percent, almost 20 percent. He had 63 million in 2016. He got 75 million and probably a lot more in 2020. So he increases his vote total by 20 percent and his voters show up on Election Day. Most of them don't vote by mail. They don't have people harvest their ballots and then place them in Mark Zuckerberg's drop boxes. His votes are real. People show up and cast their vote. He certainly didn't get 12 million mail-in votes from Mark Zuckerberg drop boxes. That we can be sure of. And it's amazing that Donald Trump did that because everybody knows that the country was sick of Donald Trump. They don't like Donald Trump. They're just sick of him. They need the adults back in the room. They need the very serious people back in the White House. The country was just ready for a change. And so they rejected Donald Trump, even while increasing his vote total by 20 percent. So in 2016, Hillary got 66 million votes. We are told she won the popular vote, which almost is something that is real and matters, except it isn't. And then in 2020, Joe Biden got 81 million votes, an increase on the Democrat side of 15 million votes. Trump, who everyone hated, went up 12 million. And Joe Biden, from his basement, was able to add 15 million votes, over 20 percent of Hillary Clinton's total, onto his total. And anyone who doubts that, huh? Well, they're conspiracy theorists, they're domestic terrorists, and they're repeating the big lie. Except it turns out that as more evidence comes in, I mean, all this stuff was obvious from the beginning, but as more evidence comes in, one state after another seems to be overwhelmingly 
obviously proven as a fraudulent and illegal election that Joe Biden did not, in fact, win. And we're talking about Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Georgia and Nevada and, of course, Arizona. In Arizona yesterday, Mark Burnovich released the first part of his report on his office's investigation of the 2020 election in Arizona. And he released a 12-page report sent to Karen Fan. It is out in public. And Karen Fan responded, Liberty Overwatch on Telegram gives a great summary of what was in the letter. And as I've said before, the Liberty Overwatch channel is great for election fraud coverage. They write, Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich released an initial review of Maricopa County's 2020 election, summarizing the preliminary findings from his ongoing investigation in a letter to Senate President Karen Fan today. Burnovich writes that his team has, quote, uncovered instances of election fraud by individuals who have been or will be prosecuted for various election crimes. However, Due to disclosure limitations related to active criminal and civil investigations, the letter's subsequent content is subdued, rehashing well-known issues with a better luck next time tone. The following are excerpts from the AG's interim report. Six months ago, the Arizona Attorney General's office received reports sent from the Arizona State Senate concerning its Maricopa County forensic election audit. In addition, the Attorney General's Election Integrity Unit has received and is reviewing additional complaints alleging election failures and potential misconduct that occurred in 2020. Our team of EIU investigators and attorneys has now collectively spent thousands of hours reviewing the Senate's audit report and other complaints, conducting interviews and analyzing Maricopa County's election system and processes. We have reached the conclusion that the 2020 election in Maricopa County revealed serious vulnerabilities that must be addressed and raises questions about the 2020 election in Arizona. The EIU's review has uncovered instances of election fraud by individuals who have been or will be prosecuted for various crimes. The EIU's review is ongoing and we are therefore limited in what we can disclose about specific criminal and civil investigations. Thus, this interim report will focus on what our office can presently share and the current status of our review. We can report that there are problematic system-wide issues that relate to early ballot handling and verification. The early ballot signature verification system in Maricopa County is insufficient to guard against abuse. At times, election workers conducting the verification process had only seconds to review a signature, under five seconds. For example, on November 4th, 2020, the Maricopa County recorder verified 206,648 early ballot affidavit signatures, which resulted in an average of 4.6 seconds per signature. There are simply too many early ballots that must be verified in too limited a period of time, thus leaving the system vulnerable to error, fraud, and oversight. And one might also wonder why Stephen Richer's Maricopa County Recorder's office was doing signature verification on 
early ballots the day after the election was over. Oh, it's because there are too many mail-in ballots this year because of COVID. So it's going to take extra time. We told you that was going to happen. Well, I mean, it didn't happen in many other states. Florida and Texas got their results in on election night. But sure, yeah, 200,000 ballots, early mail-in ballots that you have to verify signatures on the day after the election and you do each one in under five seconds. That sounds very legitimate. It sounds like Joe Biden definitely won. Moreover, our review has determined that in multiple instances, Maricopa County failed to follow critical procedures when transporting early ballots from drop locations to the election headquarters. It is estimated that between 100,000 and 200,000 ballots were transported without proper chain of custody. Now, why would ballots not have a proper chain of custody from Mark Zuckerberg's drop boxes to the counting venue and then beyond? Wouldn't that make all those ballots illegal? Yes, it would. But did they count them anyway? Yes, because you have to count all the votes. Remember, all of them doesn't matter if they're illegal, doesn't even matter if they came from a real person, doesn't matter if they're real ballots on real ballot paper. Just if it looks like a vote, you just count it for Joe Biden and that's it. The first half of this report discusses document production issues we have confronted with Maricopa County and the EIU's ongoing review of the Senate's audit reports and other complaints. The rest of this report then sets forth our election integrity concerns and recommendations. Liberty Overwatch writes, the report then goes on to identify publicly known issues in the areas of early ballot signature verification, ballot drop boxes, use of private grant monies by election officials, election document preservation and transparency, and concludes by summarizing the office's ongoing actions to defend election integrity in active litigation. Bernovich notes that the office's investigation is still developing in material ways. The office has been sending repeated requests for information from Maricopa County and new information is coming in, including as recently as yesterday. Investigations, civil and criminal of this magnitude and complexity take many months, if not years to complete. So a lot of people are very disappointed that this report isn't outlining specific crimes and specific individuals who committed those crimes. I am not as worried about that because this is just taking as long as it takes. Apparently, does that mean they might run out the clock? Yeah, of course, there's that possibility. And that's why people are getting frustrated and getting nervous about it all. But you got to let the process play out. It doesn't matter if it happens at the last second before something goes wrong. It just matters that it happens. I want the results of these investigations to be complete and unassailable. I want them to hold up in courts. If people are arrested and people are prosecuted like Katie Hobbs and Stephen Richer and the members of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, for instance, I want them to go to prison. I don't want a situation where they get off on some legal technicality because the process was rushed and not as thorough as it should have been. So I am still willing to exercise patience with Mark Burnovich. 
He clearly understands at this point that his political future is on the line if he does not get the job done in Arizona. He wants to be a senator and he will not get the America first vote if he doesn't get the job done on pretty obvious Arizona election fraud and other election related crimes. And there are positive aspects of that letter. The idea that criminal and civil investigations are ongoing and that criminal indictments may be coming. That's nothing but a good thing. His letter states uncovered instances of election fraud by individuals who have been or will be prosecuted for various election crimes. But here's how the state media describes it. This is the headline from NBC News. Arizona AG report finds no evidence of mass fraud in Maricopa County 2020 election results. All right. No evidence of mass fraud. That is how NBC News describes 200,000 ballots that do not have a chain of custody, but were nonetheless counted in Arizona's 2020 election. That is how NBC News describes it. A report issued Wednesday by Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich found no evidence of widespread voter fraud or irregularities associated with the 2020 presidential election in Maricopa County while raising concerns about some voting procedures. The interim report, six months into an investigation, was detailed in a 12-page letter to Senate President Karen Fan. Burnovich, a Republican, said his office, quote, has left no stone unturned in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Former President Donald Trump is pursuing a persistent pressure campaign to uncover any illegal activity that would support his false claims that he defeated President Joe Biden in Arizona 17 months ago. Trump lost by less than 10,500 votes and a GOP commissioned review in Maricopa County confirmed Biden's victory. They're still running with that. They're still going with their story that the recount of all the ballots showed that Joe Biden won by a little bit more. That's with all the fraudulent ballots included. So you count all the real ballots, the real votes, the real votes with chain of custody from American citizens who were eligible to vote and registered to vote in Arizona and voted from the proper county and actually followed all the rules. And then you count all the ballots that are in there, even though none of that stuff applies to them. And so when you do that, yeah, Joe Biden won. That's what the television told us in November 2020. No one doubted that that was the case. The problem is all the illegal votes mixed into that count. Now, speaking of the media just constantly lying about everything, here is another real gem from NBC News and their communist mouthpiece of the intelligence community, Ken Delanian. In a break with the past, U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia even when the intel isn't rock solid. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that is the spin version of what's happening. It was an attention-grabbing assertion that made headlines around the world. 
U.S. officials said they had indications suggesting Russia might be preparing to use chemical agents in Ukraine. And in fact, yesterday, there were reports that Russians had done that because they had blown up some tanker truck that had chemicals inside it. And then the chemicals were spewing off into the air, which is the same thing as a chemical weapons attack if you don't know anything. But back to the article about the potential of a chemical weapons attack. President Joe Biden later said it publicly, but three U.S. officials told NBC News this week there is no evidence Russia has brought any chemical weapons near Ukraine. They said the U.S. released the information to deter Russia from using the banned munitions. So they accused Russia of preparing a chemical attack based on zero evidence whatsoever. And now they admit that and say that they were just doing it so that Russia wouldn't do it. We lied to the entire population about what Russia would do in order to stop them. And the fact that they were never going to do it in the first place is what makes it so much easier to stop them. Don't you see how incredible our tactics are? It was one of a string of examples of the Biden administration's breaking with recent precedent by deploying declassified intelligence as part of an information war against Russia. The administration has done so even when the intelligence wasn't rock solid, officials said, to keep Russian President Vladimir Putin off balance. Coordinated by the White House National Security Council, the unprecedented intelligence releases have been so frequent and voluminous, officials said, that intelligence agencies had to devote more staff members to work on the declassification process, scrubbing the information so it wouldn't betray sources and methods. Observers of all stripes have called it a bold and so far successful strategy although not one without risks. Okay, so the administration, the National Security Council, is claiming that they have high-level intelligence about a bunch of different things that Russia is about to do in Ukraine. And they declassify that intelligence so that they can relate that intelligence to the public in order to deter Russia. And then it turns out that that event that they have scared people about never comes to pass, which they claim is a successful strategy. Their strategy worked. We're going to make up things about Russia, tell them to everybody so that people are more likely to support closing the sky for the comedic actor or sending in MIGs or adding on to sanctions or continuing to send money and weapons to actual Nazis. We are supposed to believe that all of this intelligence is accurate because the best intelligence agencies on earth compiled it, and it just never turns out to be true. But that's because it was all a trick to begin with. Don't you see? Don't you see how genius it is lying to the American people so that Russia won't do something? And then when they don't do it, it'll be a result of us lying to the American people. Turns out lying to the American people about what Russia is about to do is the best strategy emerging from the fake White House and the fake president's 
fake administration. It's the same strategy for everything. Gosh, these people are smart. Thank goodness the adults are back in the room. It's the most amazing display of intelligence as an instrument of state power that I have seen or that I've heard of since the Cuban Missile Crisis, said Tim Weiner, the author of a 2006 history of the CIA and 2020's The Folly and the Glory, a look at the U.S.-Russia rivalry over decades. It has certainly blunted and diffused the disinformation weaponry of the Kremlin. So we often see information coming out of the Russian side and their information is actually highly detailed. And if you trace it back, you can find that it does, in fact, map onto reality. There is a basis for the information that the Russian side is putting out quite often. And to combat that, we put out a bunch of nonsense stories that never actually come to pass. And that is how we fight back against Russian disinformation. That must have been what the 50 former intelligence officials were doing with Hunter Biden's laptop. They must have gotten some very important intelligence and then declassified it so that they could tell the American people that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation in order to to thwart the disinformation. Don't you understand? And yeah, I mean, the opposite proves true later. But hey, what matters is the strategy worked at the time. Four days before the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, the U.S. publicized spy plane photos to show the Soviet Union had deployed nuclear missiles not far from Florida's coast. The Biden administration began releasing reams of intelligence about what it said were Putin's plans and intentions even before the invasion of Ukraine began. Just this week, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan stood at the White House podium and read out what officials said was more declassified intelligence, asserting that Russia's pullout from areas around Kyiv wasn't a retreat, but a strategic redeployment that signals a significant assault on eastern and southern Ukraine, one that U.S. officials believe could be a protracted and bloody fight. And that's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who is implicated at the highest levels in the Russian collusion hoax. The idea is to preempt and disrupt the Kremlin's tactics, complicate its military campaign, undermine Moscow's propaganda, and prevent Russia from defining how the war is perceived in the world, said a Western government official familiar with the strategy. So again, the strategy is a lie to everyone to change how Russia is perceived in the world. Multiple U.S. officials acknowledge that the U.S. has used information as a weapon, even when confidence in the accuracy of the information wasn't high. Sometimes it is used low confidence intelligence for deterrent effect, as with chemical agents. And at other times, as an official put it, the U.S. is just, quote, trying to get inside Putin's head. And so far, that's been about as effective as John Stark's trash talking Michael Jordan. Some officials believe, however, that trying to get into Putin's head is a meaningless exercise because he will do what he wants regardless. After this story was published, a U.S. official told NBC News that, quote, 
The U.S. government's effort to strategically downgrade intelligence to share with allies and the public is underpinned by a rigorous review process by the National Security Council and the intelligence community to validate the quality of the information and protect sources and methods. The official added that we only approve the release of intelligence if we are confident that those two requirements are met. And despite the fact that none of it actually proves true, you should still understand that it's effective. The biggest success of the U.S. information offensive may have been delaying the invasion itself by weeks or months, which officials believe they did with accurate predictions that Russia intended to attack based on definitive intelligence. By the time Russia moved its troops in, the West presented a unified front. You got that? So they were talking about Putin invading for so long, it actually made him invade later, even though Joe Biden and the rest of the administration said that it would happen toward the end of February, which was actually when it happened. So they deterred them, I guess. Before the invasion, the U.S. asserted that Russia intended to stage a false flag attack against members of Ukraine's Russian speaking population as a justification for war and that the plans included a video featuring fake corpses. <laughs> and there are no videos with fake corpses, certainly not ones released by Western media. The video never materialized. Russia has consistently claimed it was invading to protect ethnic Russians from Nazis in Ukraine. And NBC News's Ken Delanian writes Nazis in quotes. So they're not real Nazis. You got to understand they're not real Nazis. That's just what Putin was saying. The U.S. accurately predicted that Putin intended to go through with the attack, even as other Western countries, notably France, argued otherwise. The head of France's military intelligence agency stepped down last week over the wrong call. A former U.S. official said administration officials believe the strategy delayed Putin's invasion from the first week of January to after the Olympics and that the delay bought the U.S. valuable time to get allies on the same page in terms of the level of the Russian threat and how to respond. CIA director William Burns, a former ambassador to Russia, told lawmakers at a congressional threats hearing last month that, quote, in all the years I spent as a career diplomat, I saw too many instances in which we lost information wars with the Russians, end quote. Now, he said, by being careful about this, we have stripped away the pretext that Putin in particular often uses. That has a real benefit, I think, to Ukrainians, he said. The policy has drawn lavish praise, even from some Republicans. You were spot on in your intelligence, Representative Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania said at the House's annual worldwide threats hearing last month, addressing Burns and other intelligence agency leaders. Your decision to declassify both the form and the fashion in which you did so saved lives. Sleep well and thank you for doing that. But the strategy has its dangers. One of them, the Western official said, is that getting something clearly wrong would be extremely damaging to U.S. credibility and play into Moscow's hands. <laughs> and that's that's not happening, guys. As the war has proceeded, the administration has used intelligence to warn of possible Russian actions and draw attention to Russian military failings. 
At times, the Biden administration has released information in which it has less confidence or about things that are possible rather than truly likely. Hey, Ken, truly likely means possible. It's almost like he's redefined possible to mean not impossible, like not physically impossible. It could happen in this physical world, this realm. It's not totally unbelievable. So we're just going to put that out there. We're going to tell the American public that that's what the Russians are going to do. And that's going to stop them. Genius. Last week, U.S. officials told reporters they had intelligence suggesting Putin is being misled by his own advisors who are afraid to tell him the truth. But when Biden was asked about the disclosure later in the day, after it made headlines around the globe, he was less than definitive. That's an open question. There's a lot of speculation, Biden told reporters, but he seems to be. I'm not saying this with a certainty. He seems to be self-isolating. Yeah, the intelligence was that he was socially distancing from his commanders. The degree to which Putin is isolated or relying on flawed information can't be verified, said Paul Pilar, a retired career U.S. intelligence officer. There's no way you can prove or disprove that stuff, he said. Two U.S. officials said the intelligence about whether Putin's inner circle was lying to him wasn't conclusive, based more on analysis than hard evidence. Other officials disputed that, saying the intelligence was very reliable and had been vetted at the highest levels. In another disclosure, U.S. officials said one reason not to provide Ukraine with MiG fighter jets is that intelligence showed Russia would view the move as escalatory. And so would basic logic, in fact. And that's not why they didn't give the planes over. That was true. But it was also true of Stinger missiles, which the Biden administration did provide, two U.S. officials said adding that the administration declassified the MiG information to bolster the argument not to provide them to Ukraine. Likewise, a charge that Russia had turned to China for potential military help lacked hard evidence, a European official and two U.S. officials said, but that didn't stop the media from telling everyone about it, saying that Russia was actually running out of supplies. They had misplanned everything. Now they're asking China for help. Oh, it's just not true. The U.S. officials said there are no indications China is considering providing weapons to Russia. The Biden administration put that out as a warning to China not to do so, they said. And they couldn't have told China that directly by just simply calling them. Well, hey, truth is, maybe China wouldn't take their calls like Saudi Arabia and all sorts of other countries they've called to ask for help. Hey, Venezuela, give us some oil. Now nah, we don't think so. The European official described the disclosure as, quote, a public game to prevent any military support from China, end quote. Game or not, U.S. intelligence officials say it has been successful. Intelligence is rarely definitive, and Biden officials have calculated in some cases that it's better to preempt something that might not happen rather than stay silent and watch it unfold. It doesn't have to be solid intelligence when we talk about it. A U.S. official said it's more important to get out ahead of them, Putin specifically, before they do something. It's preventative. We don't always want to wait until the intelligence is 100 percent certainty that they are going to do something. We want to get out ahead to stop them. 
And it is strange to pair that idea with what was just expressed a few paragraphs earlier, that Putin is going to go ahead and do whatever he wants and has for the entire time. The official said there was an extensive discussion about whether to reveal that the Russians had a blacklist of Ukrainian enemies whom they intended to arrest and possibly kill once they seized control. Oh, Ukrainian enemies that they wanted to arrest and maybe kill. I wonder what kind of people those were. Officials weighed the potential harm of divulging the intelligence. That was a big decision, the official said. But the intelligence, I can't even read this stuff, man. It is so funny that they think this is news. And then I think about what kind of person would believe this. And then I remember that people are still driving their cars with masks on. But the intelligence appears to have been borne out by witness accounts from towns Russia once occupied and has now left, where political assassinations have been documented. Some U.S. officials have advocated a strategy of leaning further forward in declassifying and releasing intelligence for years as U.S. adversaries became adept at using modern communications platforms to spread propaganda. In 2020, nine of 11 U.S. military combatant commanders signed a memo urging the U.S. intelligence community to declassify more information to counter disinformation and propaganda from Moscow and Beijing. The U.S. can bolster support from allies only by, quote, waging the truth in the public domain against America's 21st century challengers, the officers wrote. But efforts to compete in the battle of ideas, they added, are hamstrung by overly stringent secrecy practices. We request this help to better enable the U.S. and by extension its allies and partners to win without fighting, to fight now in so-called gray zones and to supply ammunition in the ongoing war of narratives. The four star generals wrote to the acting director of national intelligence at the time, Joseph McGuire. Unfortunately, we continue to miss opportunities to clarify truth, counter distortions, puncture false narratives, and influence events in time to make a difference, the generals said. In the past, the U.S. sat on its hands as Russia waged information war. In 2014, days before Russia invaded Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula, Russia released a recording of an apparent phone conversation between senior U.S. diplomat Victoria Newland and the ambassador to Ukraine at the time in which Newland disparaged the European Union. Isn't it incredible all the work that the word apparent is doing there? It was an apparent phone call. The recording was apparently a phone call of Victoria Newland. It's strange that they don't just say it was fake if it was fake. I mean, this was eight years ago. They know that the phone call is real and that the recording was real. The move was part of a wave of disinformation and propaganda from Moscow surrounding the seizure of Crimea, but the Obama administration didn't react. That's because the U.S. had opted out of the great power propaganda wars after the 9-11 attacks, Wiener said. So what was the United States' response to all of this? Wiener asked crickets, nothing zip. They had no response. The Biden strategy has been different. Pilar said the Biden administration took a significant risk in predicting Russia would invade Ukraine, a bold move that was vindicated by Putin's actions. <laughs> that suggests that there are some pretty strong bases for this information, Pilar said. 
Not only did it turn out to be correct, but evidently it had been presented to the president with enough confidence that he felt confident going out on a limb as far as he did. Said Pilar, boy, if there wasn't an invasion, this would have a huge cry wolf effect and make our president look pretty bad. So thank goodness everything is going exactly how they told us. I mean, except for all those things that they listed in the article and, you know, the the ghost of Kiev, those soldiers standing up for themselves on that little island and being slaughtered, even though they were all taken off the island and not killed and all the nonsense about the nuclear power plant that the Russians were attacking and the thing about how they were about to sack Kiev and the thing about how there was a massacre in Bucha, even though it turns out it was likely the Ukrainian forces and the neo-Nazi battalions who did that, man, they are batting a thousand, <laughs> you know, as a deterrent, because if Putin never does it, then the deterrent worked, which means the intelligence was right, which means it's good that they put it out. And so even though everything else they've done hasn't worked, especially the sanctions, which were meant to act as a deterrent, but now were never meant to act as a deterrent. And it's crazy, despite all this incredible success, that the president still looks pretty bad. And of course, also, he's not president. You got to kind of wonder if the people in the fake administration actually have any security clearance, or if they are just flying by the seat of their pants, trying to figure things out from media and whatever, they're straight up making up stories, calling them intelligence, and then saying that when Putin doesn't do something, the intelligence was accurate and putting it out there worked to stop him. They could literally say anything and use this excuse when they're wrong. Now, I didn't want to go long today, but I still want to hit a couple of things. The first is this crazy spate of positive COVID tests for high level Democrat and other globalist officials. Julian's rum on Truth Social compiled a pretty thorough list of these. These are the people who have gotten COVID since March 22nd. So that's like two and a half weeks. These are all the people that have gotten COVID. It's kind of insane. Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Jen Psaki, another White House spokeswoman, CIA Director Burns, Kamala Harris's comms director, Kamala's husband, Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Attorney General Garland, D.C. Mayor Bowser, DOJ antitrust chief, the U.S. Commerce Secretary, the governor of New Jersey, the prime minister of Israel, the prime minister of Ireland and the king of Norway. That's a whole lot of people getting the BA2 variant. They're actually trying to spark up another whole variant craze right now with Omicron's sister variant. Omicron was BA1, and now we have BA2. And apparently in, in Europe, they have something that they're referring to as XE. They want to keep the COVID thing going forever. And I'm starting to wonder if they just don't care 
that none of us believe any of this anymore whatsoever. They think perhaps they're right, that they can still convince enough child brains that support them that there is another covid wave that they can push more restrictions and people will just accept it. That is going to prove very, very wrong. And then finally, I want to get to one of the biggest communist lies of all right now, and one told by the fake president himself. This is from the New York Post today. Here's a dozen times Joe Biden played a role in Sun Hunter's business dealings. The White House and Joe Biden himself are still trying to pretend that Joe Biden never discussed any of Hunter's business with Hunter or, you know, his brother James or his brother Frank or, you know, Sarah Biden or any of the other Bidens, all of whom are wrapped up in the Biden family criminal enterprise. So they have 12 examples here. Number one, the latest example emerged Wednesday. That's yesterday when it was revealed that Hunter Biden got his dad to write a recommendation letter to Brown University for the son of a powerful Chinese business associate, Jonathan Lee. So Joe Biden himself wrote that letter. Yesterday, Jen Psaki was asked about it, and she said, well, that was while he was a private citizen. Okay, Jen, that doesn't answer the question at all. Why is Joe Biden writing a recommendation letter for one of Joe Biden's son's business partners in the Chinese Communist Party? How could Joe have not discussed his business with Hunter if that letter of recommendation got written? Hunter also arranged for his dad to write a letter to Georgetown University, Hunter's alma mater, on behalf of Lee's daughter, but neither child got into the elite institutions. Hunter acknowledged, this is number three, Hunter acknowledged in a 2019 New Yorker magazine article that he and his dad once discussed Hunter's job on the board of the Ukrainian energy company Burisma Holdings, which paid him as much as $83,333 a month when Joe Biden was vice president under President Barack Obama. Dad said, I hope you know what you are doing. And I said, I do, Hunter recalled. And then Joe went out and got the Ukrainian prosecutor fired. He threatened to withhold USAID to do so. But he and Hunter never discussed it. It just happened. It's a coincidence. In December 2013, number four, Hunter and his daughter Finnegan Biden traveled to China on Air Force Two with then Vice President Joe Biden during an official six-day trip to Asia. Joe Biden met with Chinese President Xi Jinping and other officials and was also introduced to Lee by his son in the lobby of the hotel where the American delegation was staying. Number five, in a 2019 text message to his daughter, Naomi, Hunter Biden bitterly wrote, I hope you all can do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years. He added, it's really hard, but don't worry. Unlike pop, I won't make you give me half your salary. Number six. As Vice President Joe Biden met with Hunter Biden business partner Devin Archer in April 2014, around the same time that Archer joined the Burisma board and shortly before Hunter Biden did so, according to Senator Ron Johnson. A photo that surfaced more than five years later reportedly shows Joe Biden, Hunter Biden and Archer posing with golf clubs on a course in the Hamptons in 2014. 
In February, Archer was sentenced to one year and one day in prison in an unrelated bond fraud scheme that targeted the impoverished Oglala Sioux tribe of American Indians. Number seven, Vadim Pozarski, a Burisma exec and advisor to its board, sent Hunter Biden an April 17th, 2015 email that said, Dear Hunter, thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving an opportunity to meet your father and spend some time together. It's really an honor and pleasure. Number eight, one day earlier, Joe Biden attended a dinner at Washington, D.C.'s Cafe Milano with some of his son's business associates from Ukraine, Russia, and Kazakhstan. An unverified photo apparently shows the Bidens posing between two of the guests who attended that night, Kazakhstani banking oligarch Kenis Rakishev and Karim Masimov, a former prime minister of Kazakhstan. Number nine. Former Hunter Biden business partner Tony Bobulinski revealed in October 2020 that he spoke with Joe Biden in May 2017 after being introduced by Hunter, who reportedly described Bobulinski as, quote, the one who's helping us with the business we're doing with the Chinese, end quote. According to Bobulinski, who has identified Joe Biden as the big guy with a 10% share in a planned deal with CEFC China Energy, the former vice president told him, Keep an eye on my son and brother and look out for my family. Number 10. Emails show that in 2017, Hunter Biden asked for a new sign and additional keys to an office he was renting in Washington, D.C.'s House of Sweden office building, which is home to the Swedish embassy. The sign was to say the Biden Foundation and Hudson West, CFC U.S., and the keys were for his father, Stepmother Jill Biden, Uncle James Biden, and a Chinese executive named Gong Wen Dong. The building manager wrote back, We are very excited and honored to welcome your new colleagues. But a spokeswoman for the Swedish agency that oversees the property told the Washington Post that the sign was never changed and the keys were not picked up. And Jen Psaki addressed this in her press conference yesterday as well. And she said they were never office mates. And that's all that matters. It's not that they intended to be office mates. It's not that they were setting the deal up and actually picking out signs and keys to distribute to the fake president and fake first lady. All that matters is that it never happened in the end. So that means that Joe and Hunter never talked about Hunter's business. Number 11, in 2015, then Vice President Joe Biden hosted a group of his son's Mexican business associates at the vice president's official residence and posed for a photo with Hunter Biden and a group of possible business partners, including Mexican billionaires Carlos Slim and Miguel Aleman Velasco. But he never talked to Hunter about business. Number 12. In 2016, emails indicate that Hunter Biden messaged Velasco's son from Air Force Two, which was en route to Mexico for an official visit. Hunter complained to the younger Velasco that he hadn't received reciprocal business favors after, quote, I have brought every single person you have ever asked me to bring to the fucking White House and the vice president's house and the inauguration. So Hunter was actually angry that he had provided all the access to his father already and still wasn't getting what he wanted. But Joe and Hunter never discussed Hunter's business. You got it? I don't think any of these people believe anything they're saying at all anymore. 
It is just lie after lie after lie after lie after lie. Indefinitely. Only lies. Nothing but lies all the time. We have a state propaganda media. We have a banana republic with an illegitimate dictator trying to exercise authoritarian and totalitarian control over our society. See it for what it is. America is not America anymore. We are the dictatorial states that we have always joked about, that the CIA would be overthrowing and installing a dictator in Central America, Latin America, the Middle East, Southeast Asia. That's us now. And the same people did it. Color revolutions. This is what it gets you. Now, I am going to try to put up some content for Friday and for Monday. I may get an episode in on Monday, but I definitely will not tomorrow. So I want to try to record some stuff this afternoon that I will put out over the weekend. But whenever that day comes, I will see you soon at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!